evening, my name is James O'Brien and welcome to the Phoenix in Cavendish Square for No Pressure to be Funny, created by Alistair Barry and Nick Revel and podcasting on the British Comedy Guide. Uh, let's crack on, we've already lost an hour today. You could blame it on gay marriage. Some legal news for you first. Um, a quick reminder that we cannot comment tonight on any court case that remains sub judice. But I think we can all agree that the main problem with Max Clifford's cock is that it is attached to his penis. <laughs> In medical news, I, I feel really sorry for that 40-year-old deaf woman who is able to hear for the first time, just as Coldplay are set to make their most depressing album ever. <laughs> Online pornography. That got your attention. Industry regulators have called for porn sites to have mandatory age checks. Failure to comply would cause the sites to reject credit card payments, thereby illustrating that industry regulators have no idea how online porn works. Or so I'm told. <laughs> Turkey, meanwhile, has banned Twitter and YouTube. Not to be outdone, North Korea has just blocked MySpace. <laughs> and uh, jokes... Jokes about Turkey replacing Twitter with a micro-blogging site called Gobble have also, have also been banned, although the site does exist, or so I'm told. <laughs> and finally, last month saw the death of RMT boss Bob Crow. As a mark of respect, I walked to work this evening. It's what he would have wanted. Thank you very much. Our first musical guest this evening is described by Wikipedia as a disturbed American singer-songwriter. We just know her as the one and only Loretta Maine, ladies and gentlemen. Spent a lot of time with my mother on Skype today, because it's Mother's Day. I fucking hate Skype. Before, I was like, sorry, Mom, can't call you for long because, you know, it's really expensive. So I only had to speak to her like one, two minutes a month. Now, Skype's like, I have no excuse. And now, because she understands the internet now, I can't even use the excuse, you know, like, oh, sorry, the, my, you know, the internet's asleep or it's on maternity leave, whatever. You know, like, I can't use It's hard. So I spent a lot of time with my mom. Sorry, and also because I'm American, actually, American Mother's Day is the second Sunday in May, so that means I now have two Mother's Day. <laughs> yeah, fuck you. <laughs> fuck you all. Anyway, I want to sing a song for her because <laughs> she probably needs me to. <laughs> That's what she likes. That's what moms are for, making you feel shit about yourself. I want to thank you, Mama. For always being there for me Even when I didn't want you to be When I declared you my greatest enemy For drying my tears, for hearing me screaming For making me screaming For driving me to tears For letting me sleep in your bed when I had a bad dream Teaching me everything that I know How to sort of bacon, how to sort of sew How to roll a joint, how to argue when I don't even really have a point 
how to make somebody cry just by giving them that look with my eye. <laughs> how to tell stories that just go on and 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 on. Thank you, Mama. Oh, Mama, it's such a shame that you're to blame for everything that is wrong with my life. The sadness in my eyes, the size of my fucking thighs. How's it always that I end up in some kind of romantic strife? But you also wiped my ass, made sure that I had a full tum, and although I never met my dad, I'll always remember all the uncles that I had. So although it's hard to say, cause you annoy me every single fucking day, in your own special way And my patience when it starts to fray On this one very special day I just want to say Thank you, Mama Thank you. Time, to, uh, t time to bring on your panel for this evening Ladies and gents, Robin Inns, Joe Wells, Alex Andreu and Suzanne Moore The Guardian's award-winning columnist Suzanne Moore has also written for Marxism Today and the Mail on Sunday, although presumably not at the same time. Uh, Joe Wells is a comedian who recently curated the world's longest stand-up gig, recorded by the Guinness Book of Records at 82 hours, yep. <laughs> although it was in Portsmouth, so perhaps it just felt like that. And according to his Twitter account, journalist, actor, and no-pressure regular Alex Andreu tried the dating site Grinder for six terrifying minutes last week. <laughs> or so I'm told. <laughs> Comedian and ranter Robin Ince combines a punishing tour schedule with his other interests, faith healing, astrology, blogging about gigs that haven't gone nearly as badly as he thinks they have, etc. Ladies and gentlemen, your panel. Before we hear from them, we will kick off, as usual, with Alistair Barry and The Devil's Advocate. This week, The Devil's Advocate believes that news is best decided by an audience vote. Alistair Barry, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much for that warm round of applause. <laughs> Yeah, it's an old trick, but it works. So, ladies and gentlemen, the devil's advocate believes that news is best decided by an audience vote. Here at No Pressure To Be Funny, we are at the cutting edge of technology. Tonight, we're filming the show with cameras so inconspicuous you probably haven't even noticed them. A bit like speed cameras. Although, apparently, speed cameras do have film in them. We're just trying to make ourselves look important. <laughs> These microphones aren't actually connected to any recording equipment. We just cobble the podcast together from the bits no one wants on LBC, or Nick Clegg, as he's known. <laughs> Nonetheless, we are introducing another revolutionary development to the show. If you uh, look under your seats, you will find the latest electronic audience voting consoles. Lent to us by our friends at the Jeremy Kyle Show. That was interesting. <laughs> just was wanting to see how many of you checked. Of course you haven't uh, got them... Even the ones who know that Jeremy Kyle doesn't do audience votes, mainly because they find the consoles really difficult to operate without opposable thumbs. 
But this is where we're headed. News is no longer news. It's a discussion board where facts are so much less interesting than opinions. Did Oscar murder Reva? Well, are you a ballistics expert? No. So if you can't decide, why not bet on the outcome with Paddy Power? I'm so glad it's televised because this is far too much fun to be decided by a proper jury. Although, thanks to the South African legal system, that's not actually a joke. What do you think happened to flight MH370? Oh, that's right, you haven't got a fucking clue, but it doesn't stop you having an opinion, and that's the important thing, isn't it? Did Nigel Farage beat Clegg in a televised debate on Britain's continuing involvement with the European Union? 56% of you said, 37% of you said, and 110% of you really didn't give a shit. (laughs) Next week, Dennis the Menace and Tintin discuss whether or not to visit Euro Disney. A poll this week discovered that one in five British people wouldn't go to a gay wedding, which is handy, as they're exactly the ones who haven't been invited. (laughs) Honestly, at this rate, we'll be doing everything by vote. It'll be Scottish independence next, mark my words. Personally, I can't wait to see David Cameron amassing troops along Hadrian's Wall and claiming that he's doing it to protect the ethnic conservatives who still live there and are both terrified. After all, we live in a democracy, even if Bertrand Russell Brand doesn't want to take part. This is the future. Voting must be compulsory, but only by remote control. Otherwise, no one's going to have any fun doing it. Thank you. Alistair Barry, ladies and gentlemen. Well, he leads us into slightly uncomfortable territory, really, because I think all of of the panel at one time or another have been in the business of of peddling opinions, and and one or two of you have also been in the business of peddling facts and or or news. They're they're, they're not the same thing, Robin Ince, and yet, as Alistair suggests, there's there's an increasing conflation. When does it become worrying or dangerous or a problem? I suppose that I, I talk of peddling facts. I, was, I haven't done one of these for years, but about uh, in fact, 10 years, I was asked to do the uh, best, uh, 50 best war films of all time. And uh, I, d- I decided to do it. And afterwards, the person interviewing me went, could you come back and do another interview? Because you've actually seen the films. <laughs> and uh, in the end, what the hell is anyone going to do? We watch the news, and how many of us go, do you know what, I just watched that thing in the news about a bad thing happening in that country. Do you know what? I think I'm going to join up now and go and do something something about that. No, we don't. We go down and we go, do you know what? I'm a really good person because I just felt sad about a thing I saw. It's like, if you haven't seen 12 Years a Slave, people think you're, you know, pro-slavery. Have you not seen it? No, I just haven't had time, that's all. No. Oh, you like slavery. I haven't seen Schindler's List either. Oh, you're anti-Semitic as well. That's roughly what I think I think. Thank you. I'd like to make this clear, that's only an opinion and based on no evidence whatsoever, I've taken that on the advice of Theresa May. Wow. Uh, Suzanne, as, as, a, as a columnist, opinions, do, do, w- when do they trump facts? Or do you always seek to link your opinions to facts rather than feelings? <laughs> yes, I make some attempt to have some facts and some research, but um, I don't think facts are always what convinces people, actually. And, um, you know, I'm at The Guardian now, and uh, I can see that... A Great big stories like NSA, surveillance and stuff, aren't told in a way that people can comprehend because it's all big data. And, you know, when I was writing a column for something like the Mail on Sunday... No, it was actually the Mail on Sunday. It wasn't something like the Mail on Sunday. There's nothing quite like the Mail on Sunday. (laughs) No, that's true. Um, But when I was at the Mail on Sunday, and the actual Mail on Sunday... um, 
and I would write something about immigration, for instance. Um, I once included a fact, and it was um, <laughs> the number of Muslims in this country, 1.2 million, and a man kept phoning me up obsessively. It wasn't Peter Hitchens. Um, and uh, saying that I was wrong because there were, in fact, 12... I got the decimal point in the wrong place. Because, uh, and there were 12 million. And how did he know this? Because he went round in a van and he saw them. Now, when you are confronted with this sort of thing, you realise that facts aren't really what sway people. Yeah, the, on uh, question time... Uh, a couple of nights ago, there, there was um, a member of the audience, they were talking about immigration, and a member of the audience said, but, but all polls show that the majority of people feel uncomfortable about immigration. And I just thought, okay, so they feel uncomfortable about immigration. What should we do about that? You know, there, there's a girl um, that, that w was threatened with being sent back home in the, in the Mauritius, mm. Um, should, should she be sent back home because a, a sort of mass of opinion generally feels uncomfortable about immigration? I mean, which bits of it? Um, but that's how it goes. And, but then you point out that's not true, that's not true. Suzanne says it is 1.2 million, it's not 12 million. And these people don't go away saying, ah, oh, oh, phew. That was, a close, that was a close run thing. What can I get cross about now? Are there still unemployed people around? Let's start putting the boot into them again. You have to treat them like toddlers. Um, you know, <laughs> re reward good behaviour, understand that sometimes it's a sort of cry for help, and um, see what they really need. You know, sometimes, you know, toddlers do a poo somewhere because they want attention. And that's how I regard a lot of my readers, really. <laughs> well, whoever you're writing for. Is that, is, is At the Mail on Sunday that I don't work for anymore. No. Was, was that because you put that fact in your column? Well, that, that, well, I must add, usually do a poo in the comments section. Yeah. <laughs> Did everybody in the room catch the debate between um, Nick Clegg and Nigel Farage? Yeah. And, and the point for me, the absolute... Clincher, where, where you realise that there were two people playing, playing slightly different games on the same pitch. It was, a, it was almost like the moment rugby was invented. Because when, when Clegg said 29 million, you tried to tell people there were 29 million people coming here. And, and Farage responded by saying, no, I didn't. And Clegg went, yes, you did, because Clegg thought that was a point. Clegg thought, yes, yes, you did. You definitely did. And then Farage said, oh, I'm more worried about the 485 million people that could come here at any moment. And that, for me was the moment where Nick Clegg sort of just went, oh, well, because now, what do you say, 400, I mean, 60 million people in Britain could all move to Norwich. There's no law in place to stop every single person in Britain moving to Norwich tonight. But it's no more likely than the, than the 485 million people coming here. So that, that debate, I don't know, did you get much out of it, Joe? Um... I, I was shocked to find out that Nick Clegg is the Deputy Prime Minister. And I, <laughs> I, but like, I knew that information, but when it was said out loud, it just seemed really... The Deputy Prime... Like, the not the proper, like, one below the Prime Minister. So that confused me at the, at the top. Um, Alex, you, you are, I suppose, the most obviously European... Can I say that? Or does that even... So the most obviously European, continental European... Sorry. Uh, on, the, on the panel. Uh, do, do you think Britain takes the issue... Do you think we reflect the seriousness that we take the issue by the calibre of politician we put up to debate it? 
Oh, but the same thing is happening in Greece. Is it? And they say, oh, yeah, yeah, the same thing is happening in France. The same thing is happening all over the place. I think that's got something to do, actually, with, with television media's obsession with getting, with the idea that if you get two people that come from polar opposite idiotic points, they will meet somewhere in the middle and that will be the truth. Um, and, and we get so many of them that actually the reasonable people that are informed by fact end up sounding like the loons heckling. Um, how, uh, how do you mean? Well, I mean, for instance, today in the Daily Politics, there was a huge segment about uh, why the BNP, having done so well um, in the last sort of local election, has now disappeared out of you. Who fucking cares? <laughs> why devote 25 minutes of airtime on the BBC to them? It will only cause more people to vote for them. It's, they just love extreme things because people switch on and, and, is that, is that, and it so, goes uh, viral on YouTube. Suzanne, is that because the main political parties have sort of coalesced into the centre ground, so the extremity is the only bit left that's interesting? Um, yeah, I mean, obviously that, that is happening. I mean, I just said the other day on Twitter that I don't go around in my real life having discussions about the EU. I just don't. And yet the whole political media class seems to think this is a massively important thing. I've never... I mean, I you know, stand in the school playground and people say, well, I like that David Cameron or whatever. But no one ever says, I hate being in the EU at the school <laughs> games. They just don't. But, but when I, I know this is slightly superficial, but, well, yeah, I am a bit superficial. But when I... I couldn't actually watch Farage for an hour because he, he is like the guy, a man who looked very much like him, plumbed in my shower the wrong way. And I think <laughs> I should have got a Polish plumber. And um, things have been all right. But the other thing is that, what is it about being right wing that is so aging? Because Farage <laughs> is six years younger than me. And yet they, they have this sort of like golf club mindset. Yeah. Like Cameron is... Uh, you know, no, Cameron's not aging as fast as Farage. No, but Farage is two years older than Nick. But Clay. their references are Benny Hill and Michael Winner, and like, what? How yeah. do they just miss that generation? Why do right wing people like what? Like, what happens? I just don't. My, Nigel Farage is more conservative than my granddad was, and it, that is just hard to understand because. Oh, well, he's Nigel Farage. Yes. Oh, I love, though, that Benny Hill thing. I now just see what Nigel Farage to Yakety Sacks being, oh. you know, frantically chased by ethnically diverse nurses. And I think so, it's a, you know, it's a, so thank you very much for that image. Directed cack-handedly by Michael Winner. Is it time for dinner yet? Yes, the, uh... Alex, I presume you do have quite a strong well, I, position on the I, European unlike Union. Unlike Suzanne, I have quite a lot of... Conversations about the EU because for me it's it's life and death. You know, uh, I mean, what happens? I've been here 23 years. I've made my life here. I've studied here. I've worked. I've paid tax. You know, all my friends are here. What happens if suddenly tomorrow they decide um, that you know what we're going to pull out? And what happens to the 1.8 million? Um, British people living outside of the UK in the EU who no one ever even mentions. You know, uh, what happens to the people who are married to people of a, of a different 
EU nationality. I get emails all, all the time from people saying, my, I'm British, my husband's Austrian, we live in France, that's where our children were born. Will we have to pick one? I mean, it's personally important to me, and, you know, I, I come from a subjective point of view because it is. It's personally important to me. And that's the thing to remember at the end of this, that there's people's lives at stake. That's where, you know, we all merge into these grey statistics uh, about immigration in the European Union, but no one ever talks about the people's lives that are at stake. Why not? Well, because what's, what's being proposed is basically driven from a business point of view. I mean, is it, isn't it an extraordinary coincidence that, that um, Euroscepticism has reached fever pitch just as the EU are about to uh, turn to tackling tax evasion and financial transactions? Yes. Isn't that, isn't that a, an interesting thing? Um, because that's where it's coming from. What's being proposed is removing the, Europe, the, the European Union for the people with any benefits that it might have and keeping the single market. So X company will still be able to set up in Ireland and avoid tax. Y company will still be able to, uh, uh, to pay uh, royalty for its coffee to a yeah. company in Luxembourg. Which it also owns. But <laughs> I won't be able to go and work and study where I won't. And, and so that's, that's the bottom line. Shit, it is important. <laughs> Thank God you're here, Alex. <laughs> Robin, why, 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 why aren't there more conversations about the, the realities rather than the rhetoric on these issues? In the end, the trouble with being, you know, being human, it's wonderful to be you know, these kind of self-conscious creatures, but in the end, we cling very closely to the... As you were saying, you know, as everyone said, Suzanne was saying as well, you know, we cling closely to what we want to believe. And if you wish to believe that you know, you're driving around in your special Muslim detector van and you've managed... It, I've just checked the total on my Muslim detector and it definitely says 12 million. You know, if you're driving around in that, I'm not even sure that man's got a license for his Muslim. And, you know, if you are going to do that, then, then you know, facts, evidence... I mean, I think the personal stories is the most important thing, though, yes. she's just said, because this is what I think on so many issues, when it actually is given some form of human face beyond whatever made-up uh, statistics there might be, then we start to be really interested. You know, that, that's true, whether it's climate change, whether it's the EU, whether it's immigration. Yeah, there are lots of people who believe that they're anti-immigration, but quite often when you actually get the personal yeah. stories of refugees... Do you remember when they used to call people who were running... Anyway, refugees? Uh, you know, and they, they actually go, well, I wouldn't want that person to be sent back to that country. Because you've given it a face. Exactly, and I think that's, that's a, a very... I mean, I also think that, that we hear a lot of kind of uh, extremist, predominantly extremist right opinions in the media. A lot of right-wing people that I know, and uh, I come from a whole family of them, due to some recessive gene, I just didn't manage to <laughs> pick up on me. And, uh, and most of them are far more forward-thinking than actually both the presumed right and left in politics. Yes. About that's loads true. of things. About immigration, about my, my, my dad, 84 years old, he doesn't care. He just, you know, he, he thinks it's interesting to live in, 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 you know, a country with diverse kind of... He doesn't, actually. I'm just saying this to annoy him. I hope he listens. <laughs> but it's... Uh, you know, he, uh... Suzanne, I, this is a phrase I'd, I'd normally come out in hives at the very mention of, but the media probably is to blame almost entirely for this because it does just go for the, for the bells and the whistles, for the boos and the hurrahs, for the sort of black and white... Uh, leave it rather than these sort of slightly nuanced inquiries into into how people's lives will be changed specifically they prefer to focus on the on the faceless whereas actually when I, I thought we went into journalism to to kind of talk to people to give faces to stories but that seems to be increasingly less possible or popular 
I, I disagree, actually. Um, and I think there's a huge amount of snobbery between broadsheet and tabloid journalism. Yeah. And actually, that is what tabloids do. Whether in, you know, they might do it in ways that people don't like because they don't like the politics of it, but they very rarely address any issue without a face on the front um, or tits. Um, uh, uh, but, uh, you know, I think that as people get more and more news from elsewhere, they, they, they do want a way through the news. Um, they want commentary on the news, a way to understand. And it's whether you... I mean, I, whether you want to read things that reinforce, as Robin said, what you already think, and we all do, we all do, um, or whether you really are going to push yourself and read stuff that you, that you yeah. don't think. I mean, for me, for instance, like um, yesterday was gay marriage. Now, obviously, that's a sort of... That's a good thing... Uh, if you believe in marriage. I don't, but I'm really happy for people to have lovely weddings if that's what they want to do. But I didn't really feel like I wanted to celebrate that. Now, yeah, the papers actually got loads of fantastic pictures. And I think most, the majority of people felt it, was a, it had a real big feel-good factor, you know. So, But sometimes all you're seeking to do in this age of Twitter and Facebook and stuff is simply make someone read maybe a thousand words to the end. I mean, that is, you know, it's that, it's that simple and it's that hard. And if you do it by bringing in personal experience and stories... I mean, when Alex was talking, I then felt really guilty that I didn't care about the EU, because obviously I should, you know. <laughs> but so as soon as, of course, you were confronted with someone's actual experience, you just have to go, hey, you know, hey, I'm wrong. And I, what that, I think journalism and the media and politicians especially, all of us, it would be a lot better if we got points for saying, I got that bit wrong. You know what? I don't know that. Um, that's what's happening now is this terrible certainty the mm. whole time. It would be really great if some really major figures in politics and journalism just went, don't know, yeah. not sure. But, you know, if I went to my editor and said, I'm writing a column about not knowing about something, they'd go, What? That's you know, not what we pay you for. Yeah, that's, that's exactly. what I, I disagree with you, James. I don't think it's all the media's fault. It's our fault as well. Yes. We've, we've got the tools in our hands to, to go and find out many different things. We need to work out what we, we think we really... You know, I think a lot of it is our own sloppy laziness and going, there we go, good, that column covers what I like, that column covers what I hate, now I'm going to smear shit all underneath it in the comments section, as you were saying. I, uh, I, during Suzanne's comments... Well, you didn't say it like that, sorry. You said it in a fun Well, but you know. during Suzanne's comments, I, I jotted down a real big feel-good factor. So I was going to say, um, now, speaking of real big feel-good factors, please welcome back to the stage, but I'm going to go with yours. So, speaking of smearing shit all over the comments <laughs> section, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome back to the stage, Nick Revel. It was just that one time. <laughs> and I admitted I was wrong. <laughs> I'm surprised, actually, that the whole uh, Crimea thing has, has lasted so long, frankly. I thought the Russians would have pulled out the day after they went in when David Cameron made that statement saying, this is completely inexcusable behaviour. I thought that would have swung it. Oh, no! Oh, no! David Cameron says our behaviour is inexcusable. Oh, God! David Cameron, you know him. He is Prime Minister of Knightsbridge. You know where we do the shopping, near Stamford Bridge. 
This is total game changer. Oh, oh, and listen, listen. Hear that? Hear that noise? That is sound of William Hague putting on his deep voice. Situation very serious. We're only lacking about, Dave. Sorry, sorry. Besides, these are not Russian troops. They are just concerned locals who happen to go to a jumble sale, happen to come across thousands of second-hand Russian uniforms at bargain price. And who knew? Same jumble sales selling second-hand Kalashnikovs and armored vehicles. What I love about it is watching everybody involved trying to seize the moral high ground. This whole crisis is happening on the East European plain, the flattest part of the entire continent. There is no high ground of any sort, whether physical or metaphorical, for thousands of miles. But that's not stopping anyone, is it? Putin said the Russians went into Crimea to comfort ethnic Russians, being comforted by Vladimir Putin, a bit like being babysat by Jimmy Savile. And then you had, and then you had John, then you had John Kerry saying, "This is the 21st century. It is completely unacceptable for a country to invade another country on a completely trumped-up pretext." He kept a straight face. Does he have Alzheimer's? So do you think we all have Alzheimer's? But you know, even 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 saying that. The invasion of Iraq doesn't morally justify the annexing of the Crimea. Pointing out that someone has broken international law doesn't mean that if you break international law, you're acting within international law. It means you've broken international law as well. I mean, computers might operate on a binary system, but reality doesn't. I mean, it might make it easier to pretend you can see the world in black and white, but it doesn't make it true, unless you're a Newcastle United fan. I, I mean, if, if you, you have quite sizable chunks, this really shocked me, quite sizable chunks of the radical American left, particularly claiming the Ukrainian revolution was nothing but a US-backed fascist coup. Uh, you know, I suppose Russia today is a little more subtle than Fox, but, but seriously? I mean, I guess their logic goes, we hate corporate American imperialism. American mass media is controlled by the corporations. Russia Today gives an alternate view. Therefore, if the people who pay for Russia Today do something that seems imperialist, they must be doing it for good reasons, which must be to fight fascists. Oh, oh, and look, that's exactly what they're saying on Russia Today also. Oh, moral confusion over. Let's go to Washington Heights for latte. Now, we all know that there were extreme right groups involved in the Maidan revolution, but not exclusively. And yes, lots of Ukrainian fought for the Nazis against Russia in the Second World War. But then again, that was, what, five years after Stalin created the famine in the Ukraine and starved seven million people to death when he collectivized Soviet agriculture. And now, I'm really, really not a fan of fascism. But when you have to choose sides in a war, the chance to fight against the people who killed 10% of your population might just have some influence on which way you jump, I'm guessing. And yes, there's lots of obnoxious anti-Semitism in Ukraine as opposed to all the other kinds. Uh, but equally, pogrom is a Russian word. And, and, and uh, by the way, I'm not disputing the legitimacy of the Crimean referendum result because Russia is well known for conducting free and fair elections throughout all the 14 consecutive years that Putin's won them, uh, despite not all his significant opponents being in jail at the time. Uh, <laughs> But I wonder, though, would the invasion have happened at all if the border between Russia and Crimea was more difficult to cross, if it was mountains and not flat plains? Uh, uh, so I guess one thing we can know for sure in black and white about this is that international law is fundamentally governed by three things, morality, topography, and guns, but not necessarily in that order. 
Uh, on, on a brighter note to finish, <laughs> I, I read today, the, the front-runner for, uh, for the May elections in the Ukraine for president is a billionaire called Petro Poroshenko. And there was a quote today from a, from a Maidan demonstrator in the paper. He said, as far as oligarchs go, he is relatively clean. <laughs> also, he has so much money, he does not need to steal anymore. <laughs> Nick Revel, ladies and gentlemen. I don't know why, but I found myself um, thinking of Robin Cook towards the end of that monologue, because that phrase, ethical foreign policy, has, has, never, seemed, has never seemed more ridiculous, has it, Robin? No. Thank you. <laughs> um, Joe Wells, have you been following this very closely? Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm like Robin, where I, I, it's a horrible story because you don't want to pick a side. Cause you, I don't want to be on the Russian side, but I also am kind of aware of the hypocrisy of the West, and I'm just, like, you know, I like a story of good and evil. I like Lord of the Rings. That's a good story. It's better than the Ukraine story. Because um, I think like the Ukraine story is like a version of Lord of the Rings, where the whole thing is ruined by the knowledge that Frodo supported the invasion of Iraq. Is that kind of thing? Um, I'm, I'm mainly obsessed with the, the dolphins. I don't know if I saw that. Um, I have the, There's uh, the Ukraine have trained dolphins to like kill enemy frogmen. This sounds like a Tony Law routine, but I promise you it's true. Uh, and that they'd uh, trained them up to kill frogmen, and the the dolphins have defected to Russia now. <laughs> and uh, and, and they're, they're, so half of them have gone to, to fight for Russia and, and they've uh, attached guns. This, I, I promise you this is all real. <laughs> they've attached guns to the dolphins. Um, I assume it's like that. I don't know how that works. And the, but what I think is amazing is that the half of the, the, the trained-up spy dolphins are now working in therapy for disabled children. <laughs> I, may, I may need you to back up just to... Just to <laughs> How does a dolphin defect? Well, that, that was how it's presented to me by the Telegraph. So maybe really? It sounds like a music hall song. <laughs> how, does, how does a dolphin defect? And that's completely true. So yeah. everyone's, everyone's laughing. <laughs> I'll tell you what, Quite now I've found primitive. out their turncoats, I'm going to be a le lot less ethical with my tuna choices. <laughs> <laughs> if we've reached, in 2014, a world where the one thing we can all go, I'll tell you what, though, I don't like the rest of the world, but I do like dolphins. If you can't even bloody like dolphins anymore... No. What kind of existence is this? Send them through the hoops and put them in small pools. Yes. <laughs> Don't put that bit out. That'll be... No, you said something about dolphins. It was just meant in a facetious manner. It was a joke. Let, let... I don't even own that many dolphins. <laughs> Any, dolphins. Anymore. Dolphins are actually common as muck anyway. It's tuna that's endangered. Is that... <laughs> that's, that's the funny It's when we start eating dolphins, they've got a problem. It's when they start... I think we've missed a trick, really, with, you know, we should have sent in Gwyneth Paltrow uh, to the Crimea because she knows how to separate properly and keep it all, you know, and we should have done it. But on the dolphin Gosh. thing, I actually, I don't like dolphins because... Um, it's <laughs> a lot of heat off me. Oh, uh, Robin, you're absolutely fine. When you talk about facts, in a, a, you know, one of the things that you mustn't get done for in a newspaper is obviously... Um, commenting on court cases when they're going on, sub judice, or libel, because it can, you know, the damages will ruin a newspaper. And when I was at the Independent, there had been a case where a man had been accused of raping a dolphin, and I made, a st I wrote some really, a very stupid column about how the dolphin had been asking for it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, swimming about with a hole in it. And, um... <laughs> No, but 
No, seriously. I mean, Andy Moore, Andy Moore was the editor, and um, it, went cra it went crazy because it was a court case. You know, I was called in to explain myself. Uh, <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> oh, oh. <laughs> Um, but could uh, we have, James, I'll throw it back to you then. Do you think it would be possible to live in a world where you actually had honest foreign policy? That if you did say, right, the reason we're going to war about this is because this country's got this, we need to make sure that we can control this element here, there's an industry there. Would we then be able... Or, or does it always have to be with this idea that, yet again, we kind of go in with pith helmet and cravat and off we go? I, I, I think... Uh, odd, and my history's not great, but, um, I mean, my knowledge of history, my personal history is fucking amazing. Yeah. They are... <laughs> Radio-wise, yeah. it's well, been I, pretty, yeah, it's been very impressive. Kind. Um, I, I think in the olden days... <laughs> technical term for you there. I think, in the, I think in the olden days, things were more right. I think you say, look, we're quite skinned. We need to go and steal lots of shit from France. And they'd go, hooray for Harry and St. George! Um, Alex, Andreu, if, if, if I can ask you a slightly more serious question, uh, you can see that, that there's a, a valid objection on Russia's part. NATO and the EU really were moving right up to Russia's borders. So I, I Putin response at least stands up to some logical scrutiny. What, what if he carries on? What, what, what do you think, what do you actually think might happen if he does annex another bit of you Ukraine? You know, I've, I, I genuinely have no idea because what has happened so far no one predicted. No. And so, uh, that's a million dollar question. I mean, the whole thing reminds me of sort of I, I, I had a cat that was really naughty he used to do really bad stuff and sometimes I was really ill and I would sit in bed and I would go, no, don't, Mowgli, don't, no, don't pick that, no, don't chew that. And that's basically the Western Putin, isn't yes. it? No, no, no further, no, don't, uh. Because essentially, yeah. someone that acts like an autocrat has a massive advantage over democracies. Yes. We've got loads of hoops to jump through. He just goes, yep, yeah, yep, yeah, invaded, annexed. Referendum done, and we're still talking about sort of what our initial response should be. <laughs> that that came across quite anti-democracy. I didn't mean that. I didn't mean it like that. Our, our second musical guest of the evening is is the first act to actually write as a thank you letter before appearing on the show. Uh, I'm told that he is the man who put the and into Mumford and sons. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the stage, Pancreas. Thanks. Thanks. It's, uh, it's really humbling to be here. Um, thanks. Let's check that. Thanks so much. No, it's... Um, I'm just quite honoured, really, to be asked to do this, uh, to hear all these stories about the news, and you know, because news is—it's about us, isn't it? You know, we're all in—we've all got our own news, and sometimes we don't read the news, and we don't know where we are in the news. We don't know what the news is, and uh, that—you know—that all really speaks to me sometimes because we're all—we're all on a journey, aren't we? And uh, we've got to find our way, and sometimes we—we wonder if we're on the same journey, but we don't know, so. Just a commentator, you know, that's what I do with my songs and my music and I, and I, uh, and I hope that, uh, you know, I just want to tell a story and I want to tell my story and if my story is your story, then that's, that's okay. Uh, uh, this song is called Banter. Banter. 
me and my friends going down and down we go down to the bar the bar that used to used to used to be a warehouse yeah and the wood there is distressed and I know I must confess that I feel distressed sometimes when I see that bar and my friends and I talk about the way that our lives have gone and how we shout and I say is this is this where I'm going and I don't know if this is the way I want to go if this is the journey that I want to take is this my mistake I don't know and my friends say what are you doing what can you say what can you do you think you're gonna be a rock star but I don't know if that's what I want to go to I've got a degree I should be working in IT but it's just banter it's just a bit of banter yeah it's just a bit of banter just a bit of banter Sitting on the bus, the number 83 Is that the bus for me? I don't know Go up to the top floor, sit at the front and pretend to steer That's what we like to do even though we're not five anymore And the kids at the back are playing their music oh so loud But I don't mind, although I really I quite mind and the kids, they can see that it's a problem for me. They see it in my eyes and they come over shouting at me, saying, no, oi, oi, batty boy, what you think you're doing? And they show me their knife and I confess that I start to be frightened. I don't know what to do and I run away from them. That's my stress. But it's just banter. It's just a bit of banter, yeah, it's just a bit of banter. It's just a bit of banter. Am I saying what I think or am I thinking what I think I think I should think? Am I saying what I think or am I saying what I think I think I should think? Am I saying what I think? Saying what I think? I think I should think. What is it? It's just banter. It's just a bit of banter. Everybody, it's just banter. Yeah, that's right. It's just a bit of banter. It's just a bit of banter. Last time, everyone. It's just a bit of banter. It's just a bit of banter. Thank you very much. Pancreas, ladies and gentlemen. Pancreas. I, I don't know about you, I think we'll be hearing a lot more about him. We, uh, we haven't been too badly let down by the audience tonight, as time will no doubt tell. In fact, we'll start with this question. With, with the death of Tony Benn, Suzanne, I'm, I'm going to come to you first, so pay attention. With the death of, with the death of Tony Benn, do, do you think that uh, it's the end of a left-wing Labour in Britain? This weird... It's, Tony Benn's hagiographies all contain the line, he was wrong about absolutely everything, didn't they? It was quite a bizarre scenario in which people were queuing up to say, what a wonderful old boy, drank so much tea, smoked a pipe, absolutely loved him, great principles. Wrong about absolutely everything. And, and some of those people were on the left. 
which I guess is the point of the question. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the same with Bob Crow, really. They're mm. kind of pulling him back into, oh, well, he was a good bloke. He was just wrong. Um, the, well, the problem at the moment, there doesn't appear to be a kind of united opposition. And I see, obviously, these attempts to make, to, you know, to sort of push Ed Miliband to say something um, that would make people think, well, there are people out there who represent not the interests, you know, I mean, to, to you know, get into the sort of Marxist jargon, but who represent the workers, who represent everyday people, or however we're going to do it. Um, and the idea in Labour that Blair only got in because he was, could appeal to the centre, to the middle classes and so on. You see Miliband still sort of dithering on whether he's going to go for the 35% or mm. whether he's going to, you know, um, actually just say what he believes. The thing, the thing about Ben... When he died, I, it was incredible to me that Cameron was more effusive about Ben than Miliband, who, in fact, worked for him when he was 16, did his work experience with him. And you just thought, oh, come on, Ed, just, you know, you think these things, just please say them. And I think there's a, just, that's what's happening in the polls at the moment. People just do not see Ed as... I mean, anyone who's met Ed will tell you he's a nice bloke, he's a likeable bloke, Bigger than you'd think. Bigger than you think. Yeah, he is actually bigger than you think. And he's got those nice sort of MDMA eyes. What? <laughs> Jesus. The Prime Minister's got a porn filter and Ed Miliband has MDMA eyes. You know what I mean? I think Bambi would have worked a little oh, less sorry. controversial. Oh, anyway, you know what I mean? He's got those... You know, yes. well, you, no, obviously you don't know what I mean. <laughs> but, but it doesn't... It doesn't. <laughs> And so what does he believe? Because what you're suggesting is that he actually would have been, a, if not a, a, a disciple of Tony Benn, then a lot closer to Tony Benn yeah. politically than he would have been to Tony Blair. Yeah, I mean, that's what all the stuff about predatory capitalism is about. And when he does come out with a policy, you know, about energy uh, price freezes, people are happy with it. I mean, it would, you know, you could draw on the back of the envelope now three or four policies that people go, yes, you know, it would be renationalise the railways, it would be you know, take on the financial sector. It would be um, refuse the cap on welfare because actually, you know, we are, most of it's going to pensions anyway. And it would certainly be something about, like, let's make a future for young people and let's try and draw young people back into the political system. If the budget was a very cynical attempt to just reward people who already have money and get old people to vote, and they are the people that vote, um, you know... I think Miliband has to come up with policies that will appeal to youth, and he's apparently going to do something on tuition fees. We don't know, but I think the bigger the bigger thing that worries me is that in the next election, um, that if we have really low turnout again, if we have a, two or three younger generations who don't vote, if someone thinks that thirty three percent is a mandate to do stuff, which the coalition did, you know, the coalition has behaved as though it has a mandate to do things that are really unpopular with many, many people. At what point do we say this is not working at all? And uh, I think, you know, I, I think the thing, the morning for Ben was simply people respecting somebody with beliefs, convictions, not that they necessarily agreed with, but he had them. And these are the people, I mean, this is how Boris, Boris works, you know, because people like someone who appears to be real. All the spin doctoring, all the, you know... 
Ed Miliband's got a wife and kids as though that's some sort of achievement. <laughs> um, you know, um, it, we don't care. Like, we just don't care, you know. I long for the days when people were found dead with an orange in their mouth and in stockings. And, you know, that's what you want. I mean... <laughs> But the, the answer is yes, we do want people who believe things. You mentioned the younger generation quite a few times there, Suzanne, and, and we have a representative of the younger generation on the panel this Thank evening, you. James. Can <laughs> 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 I just pick up the point about saying that, that, that there, there's no left in the Labour Party? Because I do a, a lot of gigs for the Labour Party, and I think there is a real... Uh, the grassroots Labour audiences are like proper working-class lefties, trade unions, and they're incredible. I did uh, a Labour gig in Basingstoke, and uh, some EDL turned up to the gig to kind of cause trouble, and I'm on stage and uh, doing some material about the EDL, and this huge bloke goes, I'm EDL, do you want to have some? And I said, no, I don't want to have some. <laughs> and, uh, but at that point, an 84-year-old female Labour councillor got up and punched him in the face. And, <laughs> What I'm saying is that, that Mary from Basingstoke should be leader of the Labour Party. I think what's needed is a new way of looking at things in general. I mean, if, if you went to the dentist and he came at you with, with hundred-year-old tools, you'd, you'd think, what is he doing? Yeah. Um, but politics <laughs> and economics still talks in terms of definitions, of systems that are 100-plus years old, and it's like, come on, we're, we, you know, we're crushing atoms against each other underneath a mountain in, in Switzerland. Surely there are new ideas of how to run things. There must be. I'm going to pick you up on something. You said both Bob Crow and Tony Benn, they got everything wrong, but they were good guys, that that was the perceived idea. Well, I would question whether just because you didn't necessarily achieve what your goals might have been, does that mean that Tony Benn did get everything wrong? In fact, Bob Crow, for the people that he represented, did he get those things wrong, or are they of that age where it's just getting very, very hard to have any of that kind of alternative viewpoint out there? You know, yes. OK, Tony Benn did it wrong, Dennis Healy, he did it right. Dennis Healy, he, he agreed that you you had to bribe people when you did weapons deals. Oh, great. Well, that's the right way of doing it. Does that make it a good way of doing it? Uh, and only one person agrees with me. Like, Fuck, they, <laughs> do they agree with me, though? They really agree yeah. with me. Yeah. To what? hell with the rest of your core demographic of milk sops. That, that is, that, that, there is the definition of, of quality, I, quality I seeing out quantity. Need. If we have the, the left unity, right, this is, it might not be a party, and I agree with you, by the way, actually, the, the problem is that we, the idea of political parties is like a cosmopolitan survey where there can only be three choices yeah. at the end. Well, it turns out you've answered mainly A, so you're Lib Dem. You know, and that's kind of, and this is very old-fashioned. We're increasingly moving to the right, even though, I mean, people are saying, Do you know what, they're all right, though, this, this coalition, and yet, when you think of the amount of things that have closed down, when you think of what is happening to the NHS, when you think of what has happened with kind of day centres for people, for respite, all of those things are going, but we're not really seeing enough coverage of them. The BBC, my God, do they do coverage of when the NHS fucks up, but they don't do that so much coverage when you've got 90% of the people who are actually, you know, involved in medical health care questioning it. We need to keep them quiet, and I apologise for being so serious there, but I do think we're currently at the moment going through a point in the media, and when I say the media, I don't just mean, I mean, this is the problem. We're not getting the facts, we're not getting the information, and we're 
we're, we're being blinded. We were talking about this in the interval, as well as our favourite moments in films that made us cry, Charlie Chaplin's The Kid. But the other thing we were talking about <laughs> is the fact that you know, we, we have this, this issue where if people weren't always being put against the person who's across the road to them and looking upwards and going, do you know what? That person there who's got yet another enormous bonus, this idea of hedge fund managers who managed to both help create a system of collapse and now make an enormous amount of money from that collapse. Yeah. That's a very bizarre situation for us to go, and I'll tell you who I blame. I blame the man who fixed my sink. You know. Yeah, maybe, maybe he was the same guy that did Suzanne. I think it was, yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you what, um, I don't always believe in the Victorian science of physiognomy, but anyone comes with Farage's face and a spanner, I don't let him in. <laughs> Um, I, I, I did point out that Martin Lewis wasn't on the panel, but energy companies, how can consumers save their money? Joe Wells. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, uh, I'm try- does this question have anything to do with dolphins or Lord of the Rings? <laughs> Roll with it. Um, but I, I, I mean, I, I think that, yeah, you were in one of those positions where you were just kind of held hostage and you, you had to pay. Do you remember what Robin said in the first half? He said... No, he said how, imp- how impressive it would be if people just said they don't know more often. OK. <laughs> but I think it's more impressive <laughs> to just kind of wing it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Today is Mothering Sunday, M- Mother's Day. Um, and and I, I quite like this question. Is there a useful purpose to assigning days to groups and issues, Alex? Um, uh, can, can I ask this Yeah, you're cool, um, of course. Yeah, <laughs> yes, there is. I love my mum very much, and I am going to say that on a podcast that goes out on the internet. I'm not ashamed of that, and also this way I don't have to buy her a card. <laughs> <laughs> Happy Mother's Day, mum. It's quite late. Love joke. It won't be up. T- it won't be up till Tuesday. The podcast, <laughs> but it's the it's the thought that counts. We will be back here at the Phoenix on the twenty seventh of April when our guests will be Jack Munro, Matt Ford, Hal Cruttenden, Don Biswas, and Steve Gribbin will be providing the music. We have a mailing list. No pressure to be funny. Dot com. But please join me in thanking our hosts this evening, Alistair Barry and Nick Revel, and our guests Suzanne Moore, Robin Ince, Joe Wells, Alex Andreu, and Pippa Evans. Thank you, of course, to you. This is no pressure to be funny. I'm James O'Brien. Good night. <laughs>